Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Thank you all for joining us today for our uh, live event for our uh, patrons. Um, we appreciate you. And so we're very happy to see you here, see some faces. I was listening to the most recent podcast about illness and magic and, and, and stuff like that. And I was just really quick wondering, are you familiar with this? Oh, no. So it's for our different. listeners, um, Marissa, can you read out the title and author? So people uh, can't see. Men Mental Illnesses in the Ancient Egyptian Book of the Heart, a reassessment of the 854A to 855Z of the Ebers Medical Papyrus. It is by Joseph Clayton. Interesting. Uh, it was published by Abercrombie Press uh, in 2022. So it awesome. is like, when I say it's new, it yeah. just came out last year. That's exactly what I wanted to, that's great. I'll, I'll definitely check that out. It's awesome because it says that where they felt that their emotions were in their heart, perhaps a lot of the diseases that they're talking about regarding the heart mm -hmm. are actually mental illnesses mm -hmm. that are being represented and awesome. not actually physical ailments. And yeah, it's like so fascinating. Yeah, I just pulled it up and it's um, Abercrombie Press, as you said, which is which is great. Great. That's Ben Davies outfit. And it's a it's a really good press. Um, and so I'll take I'll take a look at this. But yeah. The idea that you're, and it says here, um, most of the ailments described in the book of the heart affect the ib, which although very often translated as heart, is associated with mental, emotional, and cognitive mm -hmm. faculties when it appears outside the medical text. So that's that's pretty right. cool. Marissa, I'm glad that you brought that text up because listening to the podcast on magic and medicine, I thought it was uh, important to bring up the uh, uh, of a man with his ba, where a man is yes. contemplating suicide. And so- yes. you know, directly goes into what your you know what, what this book is probably going to address or probably will address when it's yeah. interesting to think too about like how different cultures express feelings of anxiety or depression right like these are probably all very culture culturally based like how to what words you use how you express these things right um right. so and and i i just pulled out my my lich time so i've, I've got a man in his bar and just for those of you that may not know it so just to read the beginning, I opened my mouth to my ba to answer what it had said. This is too great for me today. My ba will not converse with me. It is too great for exaggeration. It is like deserting me. My ba shall not go. It shall attend to me in this. And the ba is like your, your soul of mobility, your soul that can go out and see the sun, your soul that can go back and forth. Um, one, you're dead between the, the land of bird. the living and the land of the dead. It's often depicted as a bird with a human head. And it's also associated with a solar aspect or maybe a, a semi-divine aspect of the person, even though the Ka is also like a divine aspect. And then there's parts of this text where he's like, there's the, I think I gave this to you on your comp exam, Jordan, which is really crazy. You did. Um, there's, <laughs> there's a section where he's, he's really upset. And this is like, I guess, a depression or a mental a uh, uh, break, um, some some sort of break. And he says, lo, my name reeks more than carrion smell on summer days of burning sky. Lo, my name reeks more than a catch of fish on fishing days of burning sky. Lo, my name reeks more than duck smell, more than reed, I don't know what reed covers full of waterfowl. And it goes on and on about how much his name, his self, his identity is like totally, he, he just... 
he, he feels he has no confidence or he has no ability to have any pride in who he is. And, and then we have, to whom shall I speak today? Brothers are mean, the friends of today do not love. To whom shall I speak today? Hearts are greedy. Everyone robs his comrades goods. And then there's like a suicidal part where he's like, why do I even continue? Um, death is before me today, like a mm -hmm. sick man's recovery, like going outdoors after confinement. Death is before me today, like the fragrance of myrrh, like sitting under sail on a breeze day. So instead of now my name and me, my identity, it sucks, sucks, sucks. It's now, you know, when I die, everything's going to be awesome. Yeah. He's, and, he's and glorifying perfect. death. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it, it's a text that Egyptologists still don't know what to do with. It's a right. very confusing text. And what does it mean? Um, how are we to understand it? But it is a text about the human mental condition. And mm -hmm. I think that's a wonderful thing to bring and up. And I actually have a question about that because I've been thinking a lot. So my background is Middle Eastern studies, but like contemporary Middle Eastern studies, but also like um, I'm involved in Arabic dance and that dovetails with this ritual that's still done in Egypt called the Zar. It's very women focused. And one of the things I've been thinking about is how how old is that? Is there any mm. evidence in sort of the ancient material evidence for kind of gatherings of people to do this sort of it's not an exorcism. It's sort of placating spirits. And it's it is a it's a mental wellness ritual you go there when you're feeling depressed or when you're feeling ill. It's also to like get rid of things like even colds or the flu. So you'd go and you'd have this big ritual and it would go on for like, kind of go on for like a week, um, sometimes more, depending on how much money you have. And at the end, like you basically like dance yourself into a trance, collapse, and then mm -hmm. there's a big feast at the end. So there's like a sacrifice of an animal, you know, like now it's chickens, but back then it might've been like a goose. Um, if you're really rich, it could be a camel. So I always, I think like, oh, like this isn't a new phenomenon, no. right? So yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very interesting. I just quickly Googled it and was looking at some images. And um, the one thing that comes to mind is this idea between dance as a way, and oftentimes dancers in ancient Egypt were women. Um, we have men as well, but most of the dancers are, are women in most cases. And a lot of times you see dance as one of the ways of like calling forth the gods, like this cacophony of noises is one of the ways to bring the gods attention to something in funerals and in death we have you know mourners and stuff and women and you know hired seemingly hired mourners yeah as Kara's getting her system right now um no that sound <laughs> but your question abigail about whether there's evidence for this um being older the only dances i mean there are dances of like Hatshepsut's Opit Festival, you have the women dancing in the scenes um, and acrobatic dances, that kind of thing. You have stick dances shown in um, in similar kinds of scenes, um, but that's with men, men with the sticks, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's like a kind of a fighting dance that you still see in, in Egypt yeah, today. Tahtib. What is it called? Tahtib. Tahtib. And that's named after the now the sticks are mostly made out of like bamboo, mm -hmm. but I think it was a hat hataba was actually the name of the reed. So this is uh -huh. the Arabic root hataba tahtib. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's really cool when you see them like go all out and wail on each other. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's different. It's not. And, oh, sorry to jump in, but um, it, and like 
it, some people are really particular about that. Like they don't want to call it dance because there's mm-hmm. a stigma now about dancers. They say, oh, we're playing lab tahtib. You play tahtib. You don't dance tahtib. So mm-hmm. we call it dance like English, but yeah. So, so this idea, so the, the, um, the czar seems to me, and I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in, in these, um, in these things, but it's a domestic uh, sort of ritual or a village-based ritual, something that seems quite private. And so where I would look to make connections would be the, the Diral Medina Lee Klo, the enclosed beds, which are um, altar type spaces that have to do with health of the woman and the baby, having a good birth. Um, the, the images that show her having her hair braided or she being anointed after anointed is a heavy word, but being um, cared for groomed is probably a better word after the birth of a child and that that cleansing is something that'll help her be healthy again it's more of a woman's fear and women's mm-hmm. problems birth is definitely a woman's problem um kind of thing and and yet i don't know of any dancing in association with with that um, my my question is wondering like it's westcar with the seven hathors coming yeah. During the birth and like the yeah. like the birth wands and stuff, any type of like ritual movements, maybe not dance. I don't like again, we can go into like what defines dance, but ritual activities, yeah. movements um, with the birth wands, like laying out the birth bricks, because like just having looked at it further, it's it's like, as you said, like women led women based. So it's recalling like Rahit's, like the wise women of Dira Medina and um yeah yeah and dance leaves no trace in the ancient record we all know this so we have to look for things that are associated with dance or depictions of dance and depictions of dance are going to be more associated with state festivals big things that are public and shown less of this domestic stuff so that's why i would look to like a dural medina or domestic space to see if there's anything there that might be indicative of a dance that we haven't seen as a dance yet that we see as a woman doing, you know, standing with convolvus leaves, but is she dancing with the leaves? Mm-hmm. Is there something, a movement involved there that we haven't, that we haven't seen? It, I, there's an, a graduate student of mine, um, Robin Price. She's now finished she's PhD, Dr. Robin Price. And she works on smell and Jordan and Robin just published a paper or, or have just finished a paper to be published. Uh, on, it's, it's out. It's out. Yeah. Okay. And you can talk about that, Especially. but this idea of resurrecting um, smell of resurrecting um, movement of, you know, all these sensory things that we can't see. This is a hot topic in archaeology right now. And um, one has to be very holistic in how you find evidence for it. So um, we one could look, one could look. I, I don't think it would be impossible to look for those kinds of things. But Jordan, did you want to add about your, your article? Yeah. So the article is actually about the sensory aspects of dress in dance in ancient Egypt. So we went into a lot of the smell, the movement, the sound, and um, really focused on emphasizing the idea that sound, since it it is something that's, you know, you need to be near enough to hear, right? It has a locality to it um, and it it moves and that it very much functions to call forth the gods to this, to pay attention, right? Um, we looked at a lot of context, textual context where it's in translation, but like the God turning to face, like turn your face towards it, AKA like pay attention to things, um, through the music calling forth and creating this ritualized sphere. To me, it doesn't seem too far-fetched to then extend that to like healing ceremonies on a more, uh, 
domestic basis. Um, I'm even thinking like going, extending it more statewide, but to like Hathor, you know, the drunken festivals as we term them, but you know, that would have been a lot of music. Right. You know, you're hoping for the goddess to come visit you perhaps for some type of healing. Um, Dance always creates a liminal space. It's, mm-hmm. it's exactly. meant to put yes. you into the exactly. other space yes. and to invite other people into your space. It also creates boundaries, right? So mm-hmm. if you have dancing to create a, a festival um, safe space, then you might have dancers create that safe yep. boundary. And we can only imagine what those Middle Kingdom ivory wands, how they were manipulated and how dance and movement would have mm-hmm. been associated with them. All we have are the, oh, the ones and yeah. it's um all we have is the garment left behind in a funerary uh context for instance mm-hmm. it's it's really frustrating but you know we we have to assume that people are using dance and music and smell and sound in all of the ways that we do to create altered states to mm-hmm. communicate with the dead to communicate with the gods to bring in their blessings um all of these things yeah so in a way it's it's like a social um consecration Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You mm-hmm. have this established place, this established time, and you do these things that you know are meant to connect you to the gods or to the dead or to your community. Well, exactly. Like incense, you have a smell that you associate. Yeah. Music, you have yeah. to be in a special locale. Like all, it's tapping into all the various senses you have to make this. As soon as you hear the music or smell that smell or something, it's like okay, the gods are present. We're in this special, right. this difference space yeah it's also a surrender like mm-hmm. you know you go to the nightclub and you close your eyes and you just kind of we we have it. it may not be yeah. a religious <laughs> movement but we can dance in that way and it's a surrender to i don't care how i look i don't i mean this is how i dance <laughs> i don't know but like i have to erase those things and not think about it as a performance you're there just letting go and mm-hmm. yeah like yeah. Uh, and it breaks down hierarchies you know so the yeah. you you don't have to listen to what a priest or a priestess has to say you are dancing for the god and making that connection all on your own that's, that's and pretty cool that's why Dancing has always been the one of the first things that authoritarian regimes crack down on, hmm. and authoritarian um, religions. Not on, no. yeah, like not only do you have bodily autonomy over your physical self, but um, dancing has so often throughout history allowed you to commune with the spirits, commune with the gods, with the jinn, you know, all these mm-hmm. things. So, mm-hmm. especially women doing it too, because women mm-hmm. tend to be the one dancing. So, yeah, there's that. It's very interesting. I'm saying I can go to a question from Discord. When the coffin book is going to be released, Kara. Ah. <laughs> I can show you a, a picture of what the cover is going to look like. Let me find it. Um, the The coffin book, um, when did we turn it in? I turned it in like beginning of May, End of April. maybe. So two or oh, three weeks May, ago. Right. You're right. And, um, and then I just, I wanted to rest and not, <laughs> not, um, worry too much about other things, but the end of the quarter is a hellish shit show of, of meetings and, um, everyone discussing their center and, and events. And it was, it's just so much. So I've been busy going from thing to thing. Meanwhile, people are like, Kara, what's your next book going to be? We need a proposal. And so I've been really angry. I'm like, I don't want to write a proposal. I'm done with writing for a while. And so I, I'm going through all of the the feelings, like the how many stages of grief are there? It's kind of like that when you finish a big book, because this one is really like 10 years of my life, probably more. And it really tried to kill me. It tried to put me in a coffin um, in a sense, but I 
and then I tried, we tried to upload it to the box with American University Cairo Press, and it, it did not want to be uploaded. Um, so that was a whole thing. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. And it's going to be either end of this year because we gave them the, the proofs. We went right to proofs because it's got 980 photos, all color. So, you know, I can't give any publisher of a folder of 980 photos and then the captions there too, and then tell them to lay it out. We had to do it because no publisher has the time. Everyone's been cut to the bone. So we did it. Um, this book, if we put in the man hours or woman hours and counted in, it was, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars that this book has cost in labor and time, labor of love. And I still have to uh, recycling for death. Are you the creative type? And you already know lots of cool things Photoshop can do, like create eye-popping images for social and gorgeous graphics for T-shirts and posters. But did you also know it can instantly turn a gray sky into a fiery sunset, change black and white to color in a click, or make anything in your photo magically disappear? Maybe you're wondering, can anyone use Photoshop to take images from ordinary to amazing? Nope, everyone can. Visit Photoshop.com and get started for free. And I still will have to put in a healthy subvention because mm -hmm. no one gets that many color pictures in there without the book costing $300 and the book will not cost $300. I want the book to cost a hundred dollars for a 400, like 460 page book, 980 photos, all color. It's going to be about like 110 and it'll be uh 2023 end of 2023 or very beginning of 24. We'll see. We'll see. Yay. She told she, um, uh, Miriam Fahmi told me that she had cleared space with the printers in China because everyone prints everything in China now, and these places are backed up. So they had to they had to make sure they had a, the block, a window yeah. of time to print it. And there's only going to be 1,200 copies printed, and that's it. Halas, it's done. Then it will be an ebook for forever. So it will be forever in print as an ebook, but the print book will be a rare thing. So. Um, I'm going to buy like 20 copies myself on my little author's deal. And then that's it. I don't think they're going to do a second printing because of how expensive it is. Um, so, you know, so everyone has to get their those, copies. You got to get your copies. <laughs> this is a thing that we get a pre-sale link, right? We get a pre-sale link, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> you guys would get links to all kinds of things. Absolutely. You can look um, into that. And you know, I don't know how, if it sells out in two seconds, maybe they'll do a second printing of actual paper books. I have no idea, but, but it'll, it'll be out soon and, and thank the gods. And I'm waiting for the light edit that they said they're going to do. So, um, and we already have one, uh, bibliographical mistake. I sent it to some friends. I'm like, look at this. And they're like, you got my, you got my citation wrong. One guy wrote <laughs> so I'm like shit. So I have to, we have to fix that. Um, he published the same thing in two places and we're, we, I picked the wrong one. Um, and I should have known better. It's fine. We're fixing it. But so everything you ever wanted to know about the coffin that Ramses the second was buried in Seti the first, um, all of these other Kings, really the cool. coffin of Thomas the third is one of the most interesting objects from an archeological perspective, like a stratigraphic perspective that I've ever looked at in my life. And, um, it's, uh, it's kind of crazy. It's like they use the coffin and body of Thomas the third as a, as a kind of arc of the covenant in the 21st dynasty to parade before them as as their uh justification for rule so it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty intense mm. stuff and yeah i'm gonna pull a question um actually by marissa um from from the discord you asked about reproductive health and menstruation and if we know any evidence about ancient egyptians attitudes towards menstruation anything about that time of the month when ant flow is in town do we have any <laughs> talk about it <laughs> 
No one talks the, about menstruation. The only thing I can think about, um, we know how many like references to There's menstruation. There's the Dero Medina letter, the famous Dero Medina letter where the woman's like, I need some cloth. And we then assume that she needs the cloth sent to her because she's menstruating. And there's um, some of the, you know, the workers' records where they would tally who was, you know, at work or who was staying home. And it seems that the men would get off when their wives were menstruating, um, maybe to help. Um, and that the men were all taking off the same week so that seemingly the women had all synced up in the village, which is very interesting. There's an article we can post about uh, the women syncing up and like, um, their monthly cycles. And then there's also that Dear Medina text that references like women who are bleeding going off to like this special place. So maybe they were separated during menstruation, but it's one text. And so it's like, we can't make such yeah. huge claims. Like, right. you know, like in I- Indian culture, they would, you know, separate um, in the past during like Southeast Asian cultures. A lot of them will separate during menstruation, but it's one text talking about like the women going to this cleansing place or something and that's it yeah, but we can imagine of, oh no. go ahead sorry brian no 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 uh, the place of purification yes uh, yeah i don't have i don't have the exact page number i've actually got the book in front of me dancing for hathor mm-hmm. uh, which i'm using for my class um but it's called a place of purification which is completely opposite of what we experience in say the levant you know mm-hmm. where menstruation is considered to be an unclean all kinds of shitty things happened to women in the Levant that did not happen to women in Egypt for all kinds yeah. of reasons that yeah. we, we could discuss. I mean, if you want to get to nuts and bolts, when we know what underwear was like. I suspect women, when they weren't menstruating, did not usually wear underwear. They probably just went commando uh, a underneath lot of, a dress or tunic kind of A thing. lot of cultures, too, just free blood. Mm-hmm. Like, like, But, yeah, it's true. You could go you know, to a like, certain place and do that, but... Mm, just. They just, it just was. Well, but what, the, what about the what about the amulet of Isis, the Tietnot, mm-hmm. which people have interpreted as being some sort a of menstrual cloth, yeah, menstrual cloth, yeah, the Tietnot, yeah, and mm-hmm. and often made of a red stone. But right. you know, the underwear yeah. is like a think of a giant triangle. You wrap two ends of the triangle around your waist. One goes between your legs, and then you stiff stick some cloth in there, and you're good to go. Um, kind of like, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. But you know, instead of a belt, you have like a loincloth sort of action. Um, but oh, there we go. But yeah, they don't. Yeah. I mean, you think about who's writing these texts. It's men. So how much they really understood? That's not their purview. So I think a lot of these things. I mean, most cultures, we don't know really what they were doing with menstruation. It's kind of an absence of evidence type of situation. Yeah, because it wasn't um, written by men. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's less information. I mean, if your first menstrual blood is like, oh, now she can get married because she can mm-hmm. conceive and all of these things. Um, I don't know of any any liminal rites of passage that would then move a woman into a certain category as an adult because of that. But I do know from a funerary perspective, because I know my coffins, right? It's kind of ridiculous that you have way more child-sized coffins for female members of society Mm. than you do for male. If you have a child-sized coffin for a male member of society, it's generally for somebody very important, um, a prince of some kind. If, if it's, but there are a ton of them in the Ramesid period in particular for very little sub-adult females, like those women who probably just started menstruating and thus on their coffins were depicted as 
full adult. And yet the coffin is like four feet long. Mm. You wouldn't, you don't see that for young men or boys in the same way. So maybe then a, a young man, if he died at the age of 12, would have been buried in a very different way from a young woman at the age of 12. She's mm-hmm. considered more of an adult than he is, arguably, just from the funerary evidence. Um, this is what we have to do with the ancient world, you know, try to figure out holistically what, what you can from all scraps of evidence. But it's an it's an interesting topic, what menstruation then does to the female status. Yeah, so it's one of those things that I've always been curious about, but it seems like we don't have a lot of evidence for. We're just now able to talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that we're having this conversation at all is rather mm-hmm. extraordinary for me as somebody born in 72. I was born in 76, so I totally get it. Um, and yeah, it's, I feel like probably it can be talked about more because, um, there's a lot more women in like academia and in Egyptology and stuff like that. And we're okay talking about our menstrual cycles and being pregnant and all of that stuff. So I would, you know, thank you very much, uh, Jordan, um, and Amber for the links. I do appreciate it. Oh yeah, I'm reading I'm reading a book actually called Period and it's about like the history of the study of periods like within gynecological science and it it starts off with a lot of sociological experiments of like having a woman drop her tampon on the ground or drop like a pen and then asking people like what they thought of her afterwards and right. like the woman who dropped the tampon people are like oh she's like like all these negative connotations come up because she dropped her tampon, but the one who dropped a pen, like they're like, oh, she dropped a pen, like no big deal. As if like tampons, you know, menstruation products are supposed to be like kept secret. And if somehow they're revealed, like you're a bad woman or something. So um, now, Jordan, have, have you heard of the story of uh, about Hypatia where uh, apparently one of her, yeah. I think Orestius, maybe mm-hmm. name wrong, um, but he was like, you know, doting on her he was trying to woo her you know it's a graduate student basically you know with a professor and uh she pulls (laughs) cloth and throws it in his face and that's hilarious what you're in love with that's a good one yeah she holds out her bloody rags yeah Yeah, that's pretty amazing i found i um, I didn't hear that story i found a quote i think from the the daryl medina i don't know who translated it as this but i think it originally is from this terry the terry wilfong article that Mm -hmm. you mentioned and it's Year nine, fourth month of inundation, day 13, got to start with a date, um, day that the eight women came outside to the place of women when they were, and then there's a verb, and I don't know, I don't have the, the translate, but this is what we think is menstruating. Mm-hmm. They got as far as the back of the house, which, and then there's a break, the three walls. So what I would say from this is we have a place of women, whatever that means. Um, well, and like and- menstruating shouldn't be worthy enough to like write a document of it so something else must also be going on there you know like why would they make a note of the date to just say women were menstruating like women were always menstruating (laughs) yeah um so to like mark a make an ostraca make a note about it it's like did something else also happen and as for being incapacitated by your period i know some women are and i'm not denigrating that experience um but you know we get shit done during these times and it's okay <laughs> to keep going. And I imagine um, Egyptian women would have done the same. So when, when people are afraid of it, it's generally um, the men in a given society and they're the ones that have to remove um, this, this lack of cleanliness. Or there's, uh, this will be the last thing I say about it, but there's hilarious, 
hilarious TikTok videos of women asking men like how periods work, how tampons work, where do they go? <laughs> and like men have no idea. The answer is it's hilarious. So oh my God. Like the here's, the here's to sex ed- education. Yeah, like the congressmen <laughs> when they when they were told that the the yeah, the older girls put in cages at the border didn't have um, tampons or pads, and he told them to hold it. This is this is what we're talking about. God. Extraordinary. I yeah. mean, there's there's video of some nut who went into Target talking about the satanic agenda, and he's looking at tampons. Like that's even now. Yeah. Especially wow. now. Especially mm-hmm. now. All of it's coming out. All of the orthodoxies. All of the nationalisms. All of the top down hierarchical bullshit is happening now. So enjoy living now. As Gandalf says, none of us choose to live through such times, <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. And yeah, as, as a millennial, yeah. I feel like we really got the short end of the stick. <laughs> yeah, you really did. You really did. You go from one bad thing. Yeah. It's just like, they're so. like, oh, the debt ceiling. I'm like, bring it. Like, what's going to happen? I'm going to buy a bunch of gold, I guess. Like, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, anyone have a question? <laughs> bringing up Cleopatra, um, particularly like, I know my knowledge is pretty limited, but, um, there's, there's sources and like, so, I mean, I know that like, you know, there's a lot of propaganda after, um, Augustus and all of, and all of that and all the kind of sources that kind of come from him and whatnot. And then I, I learned relatively recently, and I think you guys had mentioned it a little bit on the podcast before, but I can't remember, um, that, there's like Arabic sources or Arabic scholars um, about that wrote about her that wouldn't have been influenced by the um, kind of Roman Augustan propaganda. Mm-hmm. Curious. I, I I guess I don't have really a question, but I am curious, like what you guys like think about that or like how I know they're not like super accessible because there's not a lot of trans. I think that's what you guys said. I can't remember, but I'd be curious if you guys could go more into like the Arabic side of what we know. It's, it's, it's Jewish. It's Kate stuff, right, Kara? There's two streams of knowledge. So you've got your Hebrew Aramaic texts written um, from a very different cultural perspective um, from the Levantine side. And then later than that, you have, and, and there's a connection between the two, right? And you have the Arab. There's been a, a new book published by Okasha El-Dali, E-L-D-A-L-Y. Um, and you have all of these, you know, it's, ancient Egypt and medieval Arabic writings and Cleopatra makes an appearance as a virtuous scholar, as a doctor, as a physical Mm -hmm. beauty, as a beauty expert, um, really as a kind of Imhotep sort of character. Uh, If you like this um, wise being who knows all sorts of things and knows about healing. And I, I would argue that this cultural memory of Cleopatra is very much associated with the Roman Isis cult and these ideas of going to the Isis cult through an initiation that'll help you find the meaning of life, find healing, find those things that are lauded as particularly Egyptian in the ancient Near East, like luxury, plentiful food, plentiful beer, uh, jokiness, drunkenness, fun. You know, Egypt had these reputations in the ancient world too. And, and those kinds of things were, were sought after. And so Cleopatra, um, her, her death as a, could be considered a kind of martyrdom, um, for people of a certain cultural area, as opposed to what we focus on in the West, which is the Roman view of Cleopatra, very negative view of her as a 
it's taking the same ideas, but it's turning them. So instead of her being a mistress of magic and healing, she's a sorcerer. She's, she's a witch. She's somebody who's ruining good Roman men with her magic and her lore. She's skilled in both cases, um, a seductress or a beauty in both cases, but her ends are very different um, depending on your perspective. So it's, um, it's, it's really interesting. I don't have this book yet and I, I really should get it. Um, I linked in uh, so, yeah. Kate's article. Um, yeah. So Catherine Bonacho oh, and- is a professor at, at, in our department at UCLA and she wrote on the Talmud's portrayal of her and essentially that both the rabbis and Cleopatra were against Rome. So it was useful then for them to portray her in a, um, still in this kind of a more positive portrayal because she also was fighting Rome. So your, your enemy's enemy is your friend type of, type of oh, stance. Totally, yeah. Yeah. And Kate Bonacho's work will also connect with Zenobia. Zenobia mm-hmm. of, um, Palmyra. saw Cleopatra as an, as a pre- predecessor, um, an ancestor to her own work against the Roman empire, her own battles against them. So you could look at Zenobia as well, who's remembered in, has a cultural memory in Arabic texts, I believe as well. It's pretty cool. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, it's the, I love this cultural memory and how different it is from the Western cultural memory. I'll pull another question actually from Discord from by Abigail. So I hope you don't mind talking about Sekhmet. And so Sekhmet's association with both bringing and curing disease. Again, kind of this dual-sided coin of things we often see. And with communicable diseases being so common and the idea, you know, of Sekhmet's hot breath. And is this, you know, related in any way to diseases, malaria also being related to, you know, hot kind of swampy humid areas often are malarial. Um, we can think of like early Rome and how they had to drain Rome because it was so malaria ridden. Yeah. Well, you know, there's the typical idea that the Egyptians take an animal that is associated with a certain kind of pain or discord or problem and then turn it as the protection in mm-hmm. favor of that thing. So the best example, of course, is the jackal who is a scavenger and rips apart the dead bodies limb from limb and scatters them as it eats them. And you take that, you turn it into a god, Anubis, and he then is in charge of mummification, keeping all the different parts of the body intact and contained and and unified so that they'll be able to come back to each other. But it's it's an interesting thing to think of the lion, and particularly the lioness, as associated with um, disease, pestilence. Mm-hmm. But but she's also the eye of Ray. So I don't know if it's like, we'll never know, you know, how these things came into being, where the origins of certain gods and goddesses are, how old they actually are. You know, how old does a lioness goddess go back in ancient Egypt? It's a hard thing to ask and certainly to answer. But is it is the idea of the disease from the lioness and the nature, the natural part of where she exists in the world? Do we see an Anubis kind of, jackal kind of, turn there. I don't see it, but I do see her as the eye of Ray because when the God sends her out from his body as the eye, then she's there to, to bring pestilence, to bring disease, to bring dis, to bring discord, to bring war, um, to bring all kinds of problems to human beings. And the God, the male God is the one that's dispatching her, sending her out. And when she's sent out, she takes the form of a lion who can hunt and run and, and move quickly over a desert landscape and then into other places, snatch the children, snatch other, you know, wh- whatever it can, it can be. Um, 
so so i don't i don't necessarily see like a geographic or or um natural reason for the lion to be associated with these things it might be more text to bring to this of course the um destruction of mankind text is the most useful for this right. discussion yeah. yeah yeah i think it's very much like we were saying um in the healing uh, magic and medicine episode about sometimes to heal something you need the thing to make it worse first so this like dichotomy right. between you know to set a broken leg you need to cause more pain to set it to get it to heal and i think i think to echo what kara said just that her being the eye of raw and she's protective of raw and that so anything that is an enemy of raw she can destroy and what's a good way of destroying your enemies but through disease and plague and stuff like this so and then i love that jordan turn, that, yeah. she can also heal people from it too i love that jordan because essentially what you're saying is that to heal humanity from their discord and their warfare the the god ray has to send out a poison a toxin mm -hmm. and it causes damage and harm that wakes it wakes people up and and then they correct their ways so she is like the delivery of the healing poison mm. to to heal whatever wound like some sort of gaping wound is happening among human people i i love that mm. that that's really great from a magical medicine point of view it works really well and even even in the hieroglyphs i mean the word for i is ir or irit mm -hmm. is also a homonym for to do or to mm -hmm. make so she is the doer. She is the maker. Her father, the sun god Ra, he's sitting on his ass, you know, in the solar bark. It's she who actually takes action. She is the agency. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. true. Just like the the female is the hand. She may not be the arm, but she's right. the hand for the big masturbatory moment. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 true. It's it's a it's a really interesting question to think of it from this perspective and then and then what she has to go through she has to be so bloodthirsty and cruel that it it's it just reaches a point of almost no return from from mm -hmm. her own from her own pr perspective she's all base brainstem right she's all amygdala and she can't think she's at the what do they tell the kids you know the scale of one to ten she's in the red at ten <laughs> and she she can't she can't be calmed and the only way to calm her is to then bring in the things that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, to bring in those liminal, uh, transformative rituals of dance, of smell, of drink, of, of things that, that then will bring you into a different space of awareness that will bring on that paradigm shift for her. So you got to get her drunk. You got <laughs> you to play her some nice music. Um, maybe there's some dancing involved, you know, and she can then loosen up and then she becomes that softer, pliable um, person. It's why, you know, we have a hard day. We come home, we have a drink. I do, my gods. Um, and it's that way of of finding that, you know, liminal space. I suppose I should come home, come home and turn on some 80s dance music and go for that instead. But like, that's, a, you know, these things are, are options. Yeah, I'm just, some of her epithets are very interesting too, right? She's known as the Lady of Terror, but also mm. the Lady of Life. And then she's also the one who loves Ma'at and detests evil, but then she's also the Lady of Pestilence. But so how do you like bring this, about Ma'at? You know, look at your exactly. book of gates. There's a whole lot of enemy dudes in, boils, mm -hmm. in boiling in oil 
and and heads cut off and blood spurting everywhere. I mean, the ancient Egyptians arguably created the first visualized and described hell realm. Mm -hmm. They did that. And it's it's something that is obviously inspired by what is seen on earth. But um, to to put that into the context of Ma'at and the sun rising again is um, that's that's Sakmet's jam. Mm -hmm. That's where she finds her space. Yeah. Can yeah. I say one thing I always love about that story? And I tell it all the time because when I'm doing artifacts at the museum, it's right next to a segment statue. And I'm like, she goes and goes, rah, 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 and stuff like that. I love the fact that Ra, you know, like he doesn't know what's going to happen. Like he's he's not infallible. He's making, he, he realizes he made a mistake. Like this should not have happened. And I love mm -hmm. that. Well, and her eyes are just like us. Those mm -hmm. statues, her eyes are painted red on most of them. A lot of them have been cleaned by bad conservation in the past hundred years, but those Amenhotep III Sakmets, um, the systematic work that I've seen, those eyes were painted red. I didn't know that, but I'm going to tell everyone. Yeah. And, and going, going along that theme, um, and I don't know how far to stretch this, but all of those Amenhotep III Sakmet statues are igneous rock. They are granite. That is created oh. from fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So was there like a recognition that the ancient Egyptians had? Probably not. But there's there's got to be something there. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting, Brian, you know, and I hate it when people are like, the ancient Egyptians couldn't have known that. I, I was just having a big discussion about how we use the word sun disk, and I don't think it's right. I think it should be sun globe, the Aten, when we translate the Aten. Right. Because yeah. the way it's depicted in three-dimensional relief, which is the only time you see the Aten, I haven't ever seen a statue of the Aten, right? But it's given a convexity that is showing its roundness. It is not a flat disk. And to say that the Egyptians couldn't understand that, I think that's wrong. Maybe they're, they're flat earthers, but they're round sunners. And so, <laughs> but, um, but this idea of knowing where the rock comes from or how, I mean, there's no volcanic activity that I know of. Anyone want to look this up, but um, in, in, there's Thera, there's Thera in the Mediterranean. So yeah. And down further South. So the, maybe the, they I, see the, this stuff spewed into the air and made into rock and no, I, I know volcanic stone looks different, but there, there's no, there's never. no modern, there's no modern volcanic activity in Egypt or Nubia. But like hundreds of millions of years ago, there was. Well, there, there's the island of Santorini, Terra, which the, the is Iron. the blew up a giant volcano and oh, may yeah. have actually yeah. blocked out um, the sun for a, a little while. So the region, the region is still rather seismically active. So mm -hmm. um, yeah. the you know the Rift Valley plate that goes up through Syria, Palestine. So right, um, right. But there's no volcanoes in Egypt, but there's volcanoes no. aplenty to the north in the Mediterranean and the Egyptians mm -hmm. would have seen those things. And right. maybe there's discussion and, you know, stones associated with fire or with the sun, you know, you have your quartzite, your purple and, and red or brown quartzite associated with the sun, your red granite associated with the sun. Um, granodiorite is generally seen as a more chthonic underworld type material. And that's the stone that she's carved out of for the Amenhotep the thirds, the 730 or more Amenhotep the third Sakmet statues. Um, the choice of that Osirian or Chthonic stone for her mm -hmm. is interesting. She's not put in a, she, there are images of Sakmet and a red stone, but not those, not those where it's, you get a good fortune or a bad fortune 
365 mm-hmm. days of the year times two, at least, plus more Sakhmets put into his solar court at his mortuary temple, temple of millions of years at Komal Hattan. It would have been something to see the, the calendar of the year, the solar year, all laid out in statue form with the decans interspersed around that. Why they chose the dark stone, I suppose, were differentiating her from the eye of Ray and associating her more with the potential of death and pestilence with the choice of that stone or the pregnancy for new birth, that, that potentiality. It's an mm. interesting stone choice when you get around Or more like Hathoric, like Lady of the West type of... I guess. Oh, I yeah. Guess. interesting. You know, Hathor statues the, of a cow mm-hmm. are usually... I'm I'm trying to think limestone that I know of. I don't know of any harder stone ones. I'll have to look. If anyone can mm-hmm. search one out, that'd be great. I'm thinking of the tomb was the third one. It's yeah. painted limestone. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and Hathor is a woman as a statue. Um, I'm not sure, but stone choices. So it's symbolic of everything, right? So to pick yeah. that dark stone is, is an interesting choice, uh, but also that dark stone is Southern and she comes from the South. That's the source of the sun. That's the equinox in the yeah. south, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the beginning of the new solar year. And so she comes, the uh, the sun comes from there. So she comes from there. Um, which Nubia, is, the, the land of Punt. Yes. I mean, the land yes. of the gods. Yep. Yeah. So to pick an Aswan stone, it makes perfect sense. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. Then maybe that's the reason. I like that one best. <laughs> But to not pick red granite is is interesting, but that's for the sun god, I guess. You know, his yeah. eye he gets that dark. Maybe it's so literal. It could be so literal. He's the red granite. And yes, these things occur in the same uh, matrix, which is why you see many Amenhotep III statues reused by Ramses II, like the younger Memnon in the British Museum, that show a top that's mm-hmm. that's black and a bottom that's red. I think for the younger Memnon, I have to check because there's others that turn it. Think of that one piece um, in the Luxor Museum that's like the red crown is red. Yeah. You know what I'm talking but about? Think of how literal it would be that he's the sun mm-hmm. and she's the dark pupil of the eye. And that's the dark stone. It could be as literal as that. I, I love that idea. She is the eye mm-hmm. in that moment. And the Egyptian eye would have been a brown. The pupil is, for everyone, it is a black pupil. And if you're sending out the eye, that's what she would be, a darker stone that brings potential of death. It's very much like the carrot and the stick. Like she is both the potential of very something very threatening. She's the potential of death, but also the maintainer of balance in life and but black guess, like, is the precarity trans- of it. Black is always transformation. So sending mm-hmm. her out changes something. It it transforms the situation. So things have to become something different. She goes out into a crisis of rebellion and eats and gobbles everyone up. And then people calm down, the rebellion stops, and it transforms humanity. It is that is what chthonic um imagery is meant to do. That's what Osiris is meant to do. You need the murder to have the rebirth, right? You need the death to have the new life. And Sakmet is you need the suffering and the pestilence to find the truth. <sighs> so, yeah. It's very meta. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the red eyes would show up much better on the black branded. Anyway. And the red eyes would show up on the black, indeed. And talk about meta. She's the eye, but then she's got an eye inside the eye. Oh, it's I was just writing about Tutankhamun's throne, um, the golden throne that Reeves argues is reused four times, and there he is in a throne on the throne. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's very Egyptian meta. Thank you all 
Yeah. Thanks. Thanks everyone. This is a fun afterlives of ancient Egypt and tell your friends um, and, and spread the word because it's the way that I can make sure that Jordan and Amber are paid for their paid for their work. So it's, it's a good thing. So thank you. Thank you. Have a good rest of your weekend. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms. So subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. We read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com slash afterlives and get access to our private Discord server where Jordan and I can connect with our listeners far, far away from all those toxic social media spaces. And do not forget to check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. You can find me on Facebook at Kara Cooney Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.